Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be doing the first part of a multiple part series on Paul the Open Theist. I think Paul was an open theist, and we're going to be examining his writings to prove that. Paul, he's the one that everyone turns to. All, all the Gnostics turn to him, and the Calvinists turn to him, and they look at his writings, and they say, see, look at these writings. It's all about predestination and God choosing everything, and and uh, fatalism, things like that, things of that nature. But I just don't think so. I think his writings give it away, his true beliefs and thoughts about God. Well, one primary thing we need to understand is the Platonists, when they're talking about God, they talk very formulaically. And because Paul doesn't talk like that, that's our first indication that he's not a Platonist. He's, he's not one of these people. We don't see that in his writings. Instead, his writings more mirror that of the Old Testament, more mirror him talking about God's thoughts, God's actions, God's desires, God's relationship with mankind, rather than formulaic uh, descriptions, descriptions, uh, descriptors, um, philosophical metaphysics about the nature and character of God's ontology. Uh, we just don't see that in Paul like you would expect in the Platonists. And we'll, we'll show some examples of that later. But Paul, Paul was an open theist. Let's just describe our study first. We'll kind of describe how we're going to go about this study of Paul. So what do we know about Paul? First of all, we know he was born in modern-day Turkey. So he is pretty far removed from the Alexandrian influences. He grew up and learned uh, his, his Hebrew Bible in Jerusalem, studying at the feet of Gamel. He was a Pharisee. He is steeped in Old Testament theology. So First and foremost, we have to think of Paul as an Old Testament teacher. If he's teaching anything novel, anything Platonistic, or anything like that, we can't just assume that into the text. We should default to him referencing Old Testament concepts. Just like when we come across John is talking about uh, the Word and the light, there's, there's those images that we find in the Old Testament. They're probably drawing on those Old Testament images rather than on Gnostic or mystery of religion, or Platonic ideas. And so that's how we need to read Paul, as a default, as an ancient Israelite teacher. There is some cause to think that he, he might, might have been a fatalist in some sense. Josephus has a passing reference to, to the Pharisees, that they did believe in fate, but it's kind of this compatibilistic fate in which fate does operate. God does kind of decide what he wants. He gives us different temperaments according to how he wants us to act, but we still have the free will to decide how to act. And let's read Josephus on that. Here's Josephus talking about the Pharisees. When they determine that all things are done by fate, they do not take away the freedom from men of acting as they think fit, since their notion is that it has pleased God to make a temperament whereby what he wills is done but so that the will of man can act virtuously or viciously. And so, like, let's take uh, a king or something like that. Their idea would be that God gave him a warlike temperament to, to cause wars, but he himself, that king, could decide between different options of uh, acting either evilly or virtuously. That's what it reads to me as it's going on in Josephus. Um, is it exhaustive, divine foreknowledge of all events? Not necessarily, not necessarily that where where every every little micro detail in the whole world is faded. That might not be what he's getting at here, but it could be. It could be that. 
Also interesting to note, it says they also believe that the souls have an immortal rigor in them and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life. Oh, a couple things there. First of all, uh, the Pharisees believed in resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. Paul was a Pharisee. He uses this fact to diffuse one situation in which he's in Jerusalem and he stirs up the crowd and he sees that some of them are Pharisees and some of them are Sadducees. And he says, hey, this persecution is all about resurrection of the dead. That's what I'm teaching here. And so he causes them to fight among themselves. And uh, then he, he he almost lies and he, he takes the situation when he goes in front of uh, different authorities to say, oh, this was really about resurrection is what this internal fighting is about. When really it wasn't, it was about his ministry to the Gentiles, for which he's in chains as he writes time and time again. But uh, he uses that to his advantage. That's pretty good. One thing to keep in mind here is that uh, these rewards, those people who are being rewarded in the afterlife, are under the earth. This is the idea that you see where there's a Hades and there's a paradise, and those are somewhere located below the surface of the earth and where the souls go down. Uh, perhaps there's a reference to this uh, when God swallows alive people during the Exodus, um, the people who rebelled at Mount Sinai, he swallows them alive to hell could be a reference to that. There's also references to Jesus ministering in hell to souls who are uh, captured or whatever and uh, giving the gospel to them. It might be those souls in, in the Hades portion, the fire portion or the paradise portion where then Jesus Leads, leads captive a host of captives. He, he frees a bunch of people from the underworld to bring them up to a heaven for eventual restoration with the earth, that kind of idea there. And Paul seems to uh, hold that idea in his writings. Just, just some interesting notes. That's not a platonic notion. That's not an escape this earth type of notion. That's a very traditionally um, ancient Near East, even the Egyptian religion had a place for the dead where the souls would go and the souls would be judged and, and the evil ones would uh, be banished to some evil place and the good ones would go to some sort of paradise. Uh, that, that was their idea at the time. The second thing to note about Paul is that he purposely, it looks like, avoided Egypt. He purposely avoided Alexandria. And he could have reasons for this. He could have thought these guys were too Platonized. As uh, we, we may have seen or you may have read uh, anything about Alexandria, all the famous Gnostic and Platonistic names come out of Alexandria. You have Astrilobus starting it off. You have Philo of Alexandria. You have Clement of Alexandria. You have Origen of Alexandria. You have Basilides. You have Valentinius, famous Gnostics. You have uh, different works that are coming out of there. The, the, uh, Barnabas. Barnabas is coming out of Alexandria. Very Platonized. And uh, one individual we meet in the Bible, in Acts, there's a man named Apollos, and he comes from Alexandria. So he comes up and he meets Paul, and he seems to have start a new faction because throughout the letter to the Corinthians, Paul starts talking about divisions in the church. You know, people say, I'm of Paul, and other people say, I'm of Apollos. You know, there's these different factions forming under these different teachers, and it seems that. Paul and Apollos might have had doctrinal differences in which, you know, they were not not uh, friendly necessarily to each other. They they were on good terms, but there's enough of a difference to cause different factions in the church. And as a result, he might have wanted to avoid Alexandria because of 
maybe what he saw as Hellenistic influences. Uh, Hebrews is a good candidate for to be written by Apollos because Apollos was educated and a leader in the church. And Hebrews, if you read through it, is very philosophical, I'd say, very high literature. Even the writing style is, is high literature written by someone knowledgeable. Apollos is a very good candidate. But even, even Hebrews has God watching the world in order to learn what's happening in the world. It's, it's a, maybe an ocular or a visual or just a current perception of all events and not like a future foreknowledge of all events is the description in the Hebrews. So even Apollos is probably an open theist, even though he's probably a little bit more Hellenistic than Paul. Paul probably saw that as much too Hellenistic and stuck in different regions. You see him going, traveling through Turkey, and eventually traveling through Rome. One thing he does to get to Rome is, uh, in in his, his letter to the Romans, he says, you know, um, this, this is part of his open theism, by the way. He says, I'm, I'm going to try to find a way in the will of God to make it to Rome. And so he thought that God's will was flexible, that there's different pathways you could take, and, and the, the future is not necessarily set. And and he could he could ask God to try things, and God would uh, let him do that and uh, give him latitude. And uh, there's different things that can happen all in the will of God. This is his idea. And what he does is when he's in Jerusalem, he appeals to Caesar, which is probably his good idea of getting a free trip to Rome, because then he he's basically extradited to Rome to appear before Caesar, which eventually doesn't go over very well for him. But that might have been his idea, his free ticket out of Jerusalem, where all the Jews were hostile and tried to kill him, to get to Rome, where he wanted to go anyways. And so he's he's uh, very savvy. He's very intelligent. He knows what he's doing. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Like, for example, when he's executed by Nero, didn't quite work out the way he wanted. He wanted to go to Spain, but that those plans fell through. Ends up in Rome, dies in Rome. Speaking of that, uh, Paul, his writings, we're going to arrange through Acts, which is written by Luke, but has some various speeches by Paul, and to his letters, which is all the way from Romans to Philemon, and not Hebrews. Hebrews was not written by Paul. So that's one thing that scholars agree on. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it was someone other than Paul. That's pretty much a unanimous consensus, and you could just really see it by the style of what's written and the themes and the theology of what's written is uh, is to the Hebrews. It's very Jew-centric, where Paul was a more preacher to the Gentiles, an equalizer with the Gentiles, whereas the Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. Very Jewish-centric, very very uh, orthodox, but a high philosophy type of orthodox. So we'll have to go through that sometime. Michael Heiser has a good series on Hebrews that I'd suggest everyone check out. Uh, Paul didn't write Hebrews, so that's not going to be part of this study. This study is going to focus on Paul and his descriptions of God. Anytime he talks about God's emotions, anytime he talks about God's actions, God's plans, uh, his interactions with God, those are all of note to us. There's, there's some formulaic things that we're going to cover. And formulas are very important for understanding Platonism because the Platonists very early on started adopting these formulaic expressions about God. And we'll take a look at some of those, and they, they started off in the Gnostics. You see some uh, prototypes or prototypical uh, formulaic statements in Paul, which, which could be the precursors to these Gnostic formulas. The Gnostic formulas take them well above and beyond what you see in Paul. Paul's formulas tend to be more historic, tend to be more 
reliant on uh, Old Testament theology than the newer Gnostic formula expressions. And, and we'll go ahead and start reading a couple of those Gnostic formulas. Our first example is Eugnostos, and he is a Gnostic between 50 and 150 AD. And just kind of listen to how he phrases this formulaic statement about God. The Platonists, they really care about metaphysics. They, they really care about the attributes of God. That's, that's what they care about expounding upon. Oh, what are the metaphysics of God? So, uh, eugnostos, eugnostos, he who is ineffable. We have a whole podcast on ineffability. No principle knew him, no authority, no sub subjection nor any creature from the foundation of the world, except he alone. For he is immortal and eternal, having no birth, for everyone who has birth will perish. He is unbegun, having no beginning, for everyone who has a beginning has an end. No one rules over him, he has no name, for whatever has a name is the creation of another. He is unnameable. He, remember, he's ineffable, he can't have predicates. He has no human form. That's one thing that we will cover in a future podcast. That's a very good proxy for understanding the Platonization of, of uh, Israelite theology. The Israelites, for the longest time, believed that God had parts, God had a body. You, you see early Christians, such as uh, Origen, criticizing the Jews. Justin Martyr, for example, says all, all the Jews teach us. The Jewish teachers teach that God has a body. And as Platonism came into fashion, the body, the corporal, corporality, corporality, corporality of God, it fell out of favor. It fell out of favor in in a lieu of a, kind of like a spirit essence. And we, we could use that as a proxy to understand how this type of thinking, this Platonistic thinking, and when and how it influenced the church. For whoever has human form is the creation of another. He has his own semblance, not like the semblance we have received and seen. Another thing about the form is Astrolabus, we already mentioned, of Alexandria. That was the, His existent writings are all about God not having a form. And he's coming from Alexandria. And then Philo after him, Philo of Alexandria, that's one of the things he hits on as well, God having no form. Uh, we, what we should do, well, we should dedicate a whole podcast to talking about Philo's Platonism and his influences. He grew up interacting with uh, Greek philosophy. And so this, this is where he's coming from. And this is how he views the world through these lenses of Greek philosophy. And in that Greek philosophy, God can't have a form. God can't have a body. God can't have parts. He can't have predicates. These are those ideas. For whoever has human form is the creation of another. He has his own semblance. Not like the semblance we have received and seen, but a strange semblance that surpasses all things and is better than the totalities. It looks to every side and sees itself from itself. He is infinite. He is incomprehensible. He is imperishable and has no likeness to anything. He is unchanging good. He is faultless. He is everlasting. He is blessed. He is unknowable. While he nonetheless knows himself, he is immeasurable. He is untraceable. He is perfect, having no defect. He is imperishably blessed. He is called Father of the universe. Before anything is visible among those that are visible, the majesty and authorities that are in him, he embraces the totalities of totalities, and nothing embraces him, for he is all mind, thought, and reflecting, considering rationality and power. They are all equal powers. They are all the source of the totalities. And their whole race to the last is in the foreknowledge of the unbegotten, for they had not yet come to visibility. 
So this is a Gnostic document. You know, look at the formula. So it's, it's hitting all the major things. It's hitting uh, ineffability, simplicity. Uh, God can't have predicates. God uh, it doesn't change. He, he's, he's perfect. Uh, there's some statements about foreknowledge. What kind of foreknowledge are they talking about? Not clear, but I wouldn't put it past them. That's exhaustive foreknowledge of all events that are eternally equal with God. It's what it's sounding like is going on here in this Gnostic text. Very formulaic. They care very much about the doctrine of God that they're setting up. This is one of their primary concerns. Not a concern in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk like this. We'll, we'll look at those statements of Paul a little bit later in this podcast, but it's not this. Shepherd of Hermes is a little bit more orthodox of a document. It has a little bit of a formula in it. First of all, believe that God is one. This Hermes documents between 100 and 160 AD. Even he who created all things and set them in order and brought all things from non-existence into being, who comprehends all things, being alone, incomprehensible. You're getting those ineffability, incomprehensibility type of proof texts going on here. Moving on to Aristides, and this is another church father, and he he's more orthodox. He's not a Gnostic. He says this, Now I say that God is not begotten, not made, a constant nature without beginning and without end, immortal, complete, and incomprehensible, and in saying that he is complete, I mean this, that there is no deficiency in him, and he stands in need of not, but everything stands in need of him, and in saying that he is without beginning, I mean this, that everything which has beginning also has an end, and that which has an end is dissolvable. He has no name, for everything that has a name is associated with the created. He has no likeness, nor composition of members, for he who possesses this is associated with things. Fashion. He is not a male, nor is he a female. The heavens do not contain him, but the heavens and all things visible and invisible are contained in him. Adversary. He has none, for there is none that is more powerful than he. Anger and wrath he possesses not. Is that, a, is that a concept that Paul endorses in Romans? He says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Uh, definitely Paul would reject a lot of these, these terms and phrases going on here. Anger and wrath he possesses not, for there is nothing that can stand against him. Air and forgetfulness are not in his nature, for he is altogether wisdom and understanding, and in him consists all that consists. He asks no sacrifice and no libation, nor any of the things that are visible. He asks not anything from anyone, but all, all ask from him. These concepts, you know, Paul's sayings uh, to, to those in Athens are perverted, where God is not in need of anything. They're turned into Platonic concepts. They, they're morphed from what Paul's actually talking about into this, this idea that God is this perfection that can't have any deficiency. And if God was in need of something that would introduce deficiency into the Godhead and God wouldn't be God. It's, it's the perfect being dignum Dio type of theology that they're pressing here. We see that coming in with shepherd of Hermes before that and the Gnostics before that. I think that gives a really quick, uh, couple examples. There's a lot more examples like this, these formulaic sayings about God. We kind of see how they're set up. They're just these, little sentences that are tied together that just list a bunch of attributes about God. We have some prototypical examples in the Bible, but again, it's not to this extent. We will cover those of Paul when Paul uses similar phrases, and then we'll try to discuss what he means and what we can gather from context, if anything, or if we can make these, these wide-ranging assumptions. You, you see 
these uh, phrases, these statements in the, in the Gnostics and in uh, Aristides and and others, they're they're more fleshed out. They're more they have more context, and we're able to understand what they're saying a lot better than the short little tiny snippets that we might find in Paul. The first quote of Paul we're going to turn to is in Acts 14, Acts 14, 15, and he's talking to men. These are Gentiles. These are believers, maybe in uh, the false gods, the Zeuses of the world. He says this, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, the idols, to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all things that are in them. And who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So this is the, there's a few things going on here. First of all, we need to note that Paul's description of God is living. It's dynamic. This is, this is the God who exists and does stuff. And God is often described as dynamic throughout the Bible. God has change. And that, that's what dynamic means. And that's what we see throughout the Bible. This, this is one of the primary traits ascribed to God is change. He's dynamic. He's living. He does stuff. He lives. He breathes. He acts. He interacts. This is totally rejected by some of those prior formulas that we read where God cannot be related to the world. God cannot have predicates. God has to be eternally simple. God's in need of not. If God has interactions that creates dependencies uh, in the Platonic mindset, you can't have that or else that destroys their notion of God. So already in this one quote, you see a lot of rejection of these future formulaic sayings. And what does he appeal to? These are Gentiles. When Paul or when God is being talked about to the Jews, they'll often reference as God's power act, maybe leading them out of Israel. It's one of the most famous power acts referenced throughout the Bible. But that's in reference to Israel. Israel cares about those things. The Gentiles don't care about those things. So when they're evangelizing Gentiles, the power acts that they turn to are more universal. It's a, This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. That's the power act that the Gentiles should care about. This is creator God that, uh, that Paul is talking about. One last thing to note about this, this is a side note about Paul's theology. In the past, in, in the Old Testament, Conversion wasn't the primary goal. There, no one, no one was invaded. No one was, There's no jihad. There's no holy war. Other nations are not put down for being pagan nations. When other nations are put down, it's for moral reasons. Maybe they're sacrificing their kids. Maybe they're engaging in homosexual acts. Those are the reasons you go to war. It's not because they're worshiping a false god. There's no jihad or holy war in the Bible. And Paul points this out several times throughout his writings, that God winks at these bygone generations. He said, he, God allowed you to do your own thing in the past, but now he commands all, all men everywhere to repent. There's a change in God's uh, procedure. There's a change in God, how God operates and how God is treating these Gentile nations. And this is at the forefront of Paul's gospel, his outreach to these Gentile nations. This change of process, Paul's an open theist. God changes his process. Fast forward to Acts 17. This is another uh, segment of Paul's which exposes his open theism. He's talking to the men of Athens. Again, he's talking to the Gentiles again. And a lot of the same themes come up. He starts with this allusion to the unknown God, what Paul would do when he was encountering these uh, civilizations, these Gentile cities, or even pointing to the Jews. He would, he would allude to things that are in the cities. And so he would take popular references, popular, pop culture and interweave these ideas into the points that he's making, much like 
maybe a modern preacher would do. Maybe a modern preacher shows like a clip of Titanic, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio. They make some sort of point like that. Paul often did that. He he subverted elements of of uh, the popular culture. When he talks about mystery cults, what are mystery cults? Mystery cults were these these cults which involved initiation and and ritual ascension to higher levels until you learn the ultimate mystery. And in Ephesians uh, three six, he just goes out and he just says the mystery. He says, "Here's the mystery to be specific: that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus." He goes out and flat out says the mystery. He subverts this idea of the mystery cults. He subverts it in such a way that. Uh, you know, he, re, he turns it on its head. He likes to do those things. So now he's looking through Athens and he sees an idol to the unknown God. And is he going to make a Platonistic point? Is it going to be this ineffable God that no one could describe? No, it's just a God that they don't know the name of. And he's going to proclaim to them the name of this God. He subverts that that trope, that, that uh, element of their society. And he's arguing to the philosophers about this. And he, he describes this God. How does he describe this God? God who made the world and everything in it. Again, he's talking to Gentiles, so he's pointing to God's power act in creation rather than maybe something like God's power act in delivering Israel from Egypt because creation is, is more of a universal concept that will get through to them. That, that tells them who God is. God is the creative God. And even in Philo, I was reading Philo today, and Philo wants to disassociate God from creation. Because creation is an act and creation associates him with the material world. And so you got to separate God from the material world. This, these are Platonic ideas where in Plotinus, the, God had to reflect on himself in such a way where he doesn't change, but the world spawns without touching him. Philo of Alexandria had that same idea that God had to be totally separate from the material world. But that's not the case for Paul. In Paul's theology, God is the creator of the world. God has relationship to the world. God has dependencies, as you would say, with the world. Not, not like, oh, God is so needy and he just needs everything. But God does have dependencies. God wants our, our praise. God wants uh, to interact with us. God wants a relationship. These are things that God desires. He sings over us. Paul writes that God praises us. In Romans, God, he writes that God praises us. That's not a Calvinist concept where God is praising other beings because God has to maximize his own glory, right? That They got the Platonistic ideas in Calvinism. Paul wasn't, wasn't a Calvinist. He didn't, he didn't ascribe to these Calvinistic notions of all the glory to God and God can't uh, give to us anything and we have to be a reflection of God's glory and we can't add anything to God and, and uh, just categorically speaking, they're on a different page. They're, they're not in, in Paul's worldview. So what does Paul appeal to? He's the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made of hands. So this is a God who's a ruler, a God who is above everything. He doesn't uh, live in any temple. That's a very Old Testament notion where Solomon's going to build the temple and God's like, you think these temples can contain me? I don't think so. God is... Uh, God, God is bigger than that. Not necessarily a physical space bigger than that, but God's not going to be contained and confined by man's creations. God, the, Mankind don't work to serve God in such a way where they just build him houses to live in, and he just leisurely lives in these houses, and mankind is their menial servants. That kind of stuff is turned on its head, and instead these temples uh, serve as more of a focal point for the cult worship 
of Yahweh, the place where people could go to sacrifice, to commune with God. Not that it's it's going to house him, that that's going to be his permanent dwelling place and nowhere else. And, and uh, he's not on Mount Zion. He's not in heaven, but he's confined to this temple. That's not their idea. Here's a verse that often gets turned on its head. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives all life, breath, and all things. So God is the sustainer. God is the creator. God's given life to everything. And Calvinists will take this little phrase that uh, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. And they'll, they'll impose their platonic values where God can't have reliances or dependencies on us or else he would not be God anymore. That's not what it's saying. It's it's saying that God doesn't need us. Like, uh, I might not need children. I could still derive benefit from having children. You know, I don't need children. I, I, I don't. But I like to have them around. I like to interact with them. But I wouldn't say, oh, I need those children to survive. and and uh, Or I need those children because I'm so dependent or anything like that. I gain satisfaction from them. I gain pleasure from interacting with them. But, you know, I don't need them. And that's his idea here that uh, the gods in other ancient Near East religions would be served by mankind. Mankind was created to serve the gods. Rather, uh, God doesn't isn't in need of us building him stuff and, and feeding him and we're not serving him like servants or anything like that. He's subverting ancient Near East concepts. Moving on to verse 26, this is sometimes used as a Calvinistic proof text. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. I think the ESV has a better translation. Let's switch to the ESV. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I think that works a lot better. It's not necessary to read it as if God from time eternal decided all the times and boundaries. Just the general idea is that he picks and chooses the boundaries and the extent of kingdoms. Like he might call Cyrus to rise up. He might call King Nebuchadnezzar to rise up. He might rise Pharaoh for a purpose and then destroy Pharaoh. And the idea being stressed here is that God controls uh, national events. God whistles for the Assyrians to come attack Israel. Then they overstep their bounds in the biblical text, and then God has to punish them for overstepping the bounds that he gave him. But he does control world affairs, is, is the idea that's being stressed here. The word for appointed we can find in Philostrasis, the Athenian. And here's, here's his phrase which uses the word. And it's hard to tell which word is actually translated this because I think it's more of a concept than an actual one-for-one -one word. He accordingly summoned the jailers who had charge of such cases and said, and so summoned, well, there's a word for summoned. It just means to call forth or, or tell to come or, or appoint. So appointed or allotted, that's a good translation. The ESV has a good translation. Doesn't necessitate Calvinism or future divine foreknowledge of all things doesn't preclude it either it's not a proof text one way or the other i'm saying unless there's further context that explains what's going on here it's not going to be a proof text one way or the other moving on to romans romans 1 9 we might have missed a few texts we'll, we'll probably go back and uh, scrub some more texts but romans 1 9 for god is my witness whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing i mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, 
I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul thought that, uh, you know, some like Kierkegaard had this statement that prayer is for us. Prayer changes us. You know, Paul's not a Calvinist. Paul's not one of those people who thinks the future is set and, and uh, everything that uh, is going to happen has been foreknown from all of eternity. He thinks there's there's an open future, that he could change the future, that he could pray and God will make some decisions, uh, decisions that have flexibility. And all those those changes and flexibility are all within the will of God. That's Paul's idea. You know, my kids, they, they might want to clean the room in one way and I, I let them clean it in a different way. That's, that's still within my will. I will for them to clean the room. Like when we were kids, what we do is we'd, we'd put on the Nintendo and uh, we'd play a multiplayer game, and whoever like would be like a fighting game, like Street Fighter, and whoever lost had to go pick up 50 items before they got to play again. And so it incentivized everyone to go pick up the room in a different way than maybe my dad wanted us to clean up the room, but it worked, and it was a way within the will of my dad to clean the room. When I reminisce about that with uh, my siblings, they're all mad. They're like, you always won, and so you never had to clean up very much. I'm like, well, that's just an added benefit of our, our nice little system there, playing video games to clean up a room, but uh, good times. So it's not like if you have a will for something, there's only one specific way that that will can come true. Like if I will to feed my family, there's different ways to feed my family. It doesn't have to be through hamburgers. It could be through hot dogs. It could be through pizza. You know, my will is just to keep them fed and keep them happy. And there's different ways to do that. That's what Paul is praying for here, that maybe there's some sort of way in God's will that I come to Rome. And he figured out a way to get to Rome, ultimately, and it didn't turn out very well for him. Was that God's purpose and plan? Well, maybe, maybe, but uh, we don't have any, any, any indication that Paul's eventual execution was what God ultimately wanted. All right, we're going to have to end the first part of this study on Paul after the next section, but it's a long section, so bear with me and we'll, we'll read it. This, the second part of the first chapter of Romans is incredibly interesting what's written here. It starts in about 16. So, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for his power of God, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember, Paul's gospel was leveling Jews and Greeks. And so he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But his idea here is that everyone, every single person uh, has a chance to get the gospel. And how do we know this? How do we know this? It's not this Calvinistic notion that God just wants some types of different types of people. God wants some blacks and some Asians and some rich and some poor and some lawyers and some uh, haircut people, barbers, hairdressers. God just wants some of each type of person to be saved. That's not what's going on here because later, just a couple verses later, God gets mad. God gets angry that people reject him. Uh, so the rejecting is part of the everyone. So he makes it available to everyone. He gives everyone the information and then they reject him. And then he acts out, God acts out in wrath, in anger. He's mad about this. This is something that should not happen. People should act rationally when presented with information, rational information to make rational decisions. And when they don't, God gets frustrated. There, there's, there's consequences. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So they know the truth. They're just suppressing the truth. And so keep that in mind. Uh, they suppress the truth. They know the truth. They suppress it. That, 
the people say, oh, only, only people who have this special enlightening by God can know the truth and can respond. No, 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 no. In Paul's theology, the evil people, they're suppressing the truth. They know the truth, but suppress it. And if this is not explicit enough, it keeps telling this over and over again. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Oh, they, they know the truth. It's not this Calvinist notion where it's hidden from everyone and you need your special enlightening to understand it. No, they are getting the wrath because they know and they suppress. It's plain and they reject because God has shown it to them. Oh, God acted positively to give them this information that they have, that they know, and then they suppress and then they get the wrath. You suppress the truth, you get the wrath. It's not a Calvinistic notion. These people are rejecting God, and God's getting angry. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So these people knew it. They knew it. It was simple. It was made clear. How, how much more acute, how much more accurate, how much more clear does Paul need to get that these people know, and then they still reject. And this is a moral failing on their part, because they should have. They had every opportunity to accept, and they chose not to accept. Not a Calvinistic notion. Very free will notion. And God gets mad. And God responds in wrath. God responds in frustration. So invisible attributes. Invisible, the Greek word is not seen, has not seen attributes. Basically, Paul's saying that his not seen attributes can be seen through the effects of his not seen attributes. And in this example, it's his power. And what Paul points to a lot is God's creative power. God created the world. And so we should understand that there is a creator God because we can look around and see the creation to know that there is a creator God. Godhead, this is the only time this is used in uh, the New Testament, this word. Is that a cognate for God's power? Is it you know, his, his power and his might, you know, they're, they're very similar words and they, they reinforce each other. You see this linguistic trick used throughout the Bible where the same concept is repeated in slightly nuanced ways to just reinforce the overall point. That's probably what's going on here. They're probably cognates. They probably overlap and they probably mean the same thing. So God's invisible attributes are probably his power, his ability to act. And people don't see God creating. No one sees God create the world, but the world's there for us to see as an after effect of God's creative power. Paul specifically points this out since the creation of the world. You know, he points to the creation of the world as we see him do twice already in Acts. That's the power act that Paul points to. That's Yahweh's action. That's, that defines God by his power. God is a creative God. God is a God who created the universe. God is the ultimate God. He's not one of these subordinate gods who are under a primary deity that you, you pray to Baal, but there's, there's a primary El God that actually rules over the pantheon, nothing like that. Yahweh God is the head God. Yahweh God is the creator God. He's not, uh, you know, it's like not Enlil, who Marduk overthrows to take ascendancy. That's not what's happening here. Yahweh is the primary God, the creative force in the world. He says, so they are without excuse. This is another anti-Calvinist notion. The Calvinists will give people excuses. Why is someone not saved? Because God did not eternally predestine them to be saved. That's an excuse. Paul's basically setting up a very clear scenario to say, 
there is no conceivable excuse why these people reject God. And if you give them an out, if you say, oh, these guys had no ability to respond, they didn't have the special enlightening to respond, that's an excuse. And that goes against, that violates what Paul is trying to set down in this passage. That people are without excuse because they have all the information and they choose to reject it. They got free will. That's what he's teaching here. Paul is teaching free will. He's, he's not a fatalist. He's not like everything's predestined from all of eternity. No, people can. They can accept the truth, but they choose not to. And then they get the wrath. If he wasn't clear already that these people knew and suppressed it, let's read on. For although they knew God, whoa, they knew God. Oh, they had the truth. They do it. They do it. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The next verse I got highlighted in my program because uh, it's, it's a very interesting verse about who God is. And exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so God is being contrasted to images, probably these idols, lifeless idols are often criticized throughout the Bible. And this is being contrasted to a moral God. This word for immortal is used of man as well. Uh, Paul talks about in Corinthians that we are going to die with the physical bodies and we're going to be raised with immortal bodies. The same word is used for that. Is Paul referencing the same idea in both passages? You know, sometimes Paul will use different words in different senses and in different areas of his writing, uh, he he could be he could be uh, referencing maybe God's eternal or everlasting. That idea might be coming through here rather than how he uses the same word in regards to man, where man's just going to have access to eternal life, where man is a created being but will just always live forever. So one Corinthians fifteen fifty two is the reference to man with this word. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We're going to die with our physical bodies and be raised with our spiritual, immortal bodies, same word being used. But it also is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 1.17. And this is one of those proto-formulas that we're talking about, where Paul lists off what looks like a list of attributes, or what looks like... The beginnings of what we see later in Gnostic and then uh, church father type literature where a list of attributes are talked about according to God, about God, a defining God, defining metaphysics. But here is 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of ages. And king of ages kind of reminds me of the descriptions of El where he's the God of years. You know, he's he's an elderly God who sits on a throne with a gray beard as is the description of El in this Babylonian literature. Uh, it could be a reference to that. It could be like a reference to Daniel, where God is sitting on the throne with the gray hair, kind of like the El reference. He might be. Or or King of Ages uh, it could be talking about a Platonistic notion of timelessness or uh, someone above predicates. Maybe, but uh, I we have to default no. We have to default to referencing Old Testament theology because we don't have any indication from the context that he's talking about the Platonic concepts rather than the ancient biblical ideas of who God is. King of Ages, it could just mean that God is the God who will reign forever. That's a very Old Testament concept as well, where God reigns from everlasting to everlasting. He's not going to be overthrown. He's the Alpha and Omega. 
he was and he is and he is to come. Those are power claims about God's not going to be overthrown. God's not going to be defeated and supplanted by another God, as, as you find in other ancient Near East uh, religions where, you know, a Marduk will rise to ascendancy after killing off Enlil. Immortal, that's our word. That's our word from Romans, uh, sometimes used about mankind. It means they're not going to die. So uh, in Paul's theology, the spiritual had a different quality than the material. The material will decay. We will eventually die. Whereas the spiritual is, is like everlasting. It doesn't mean it can never be destroyed. It doesn't mean that uh, once we get our immortal bodies, there's there's nothing God can do. God can't even destroy our bodies or anything like that. The angels have immortal bodies, but in Psalms 82, God threatens them with death. He says, like men, you will die. These are the immortal angels. Immortals, just like in vampire literature, the vampires are immortal, but that doesn't mean they can't die. That means they'll live forever if they don't get killed in some unnatural way. They're not going to die of old age. They're not going to die of a heart attack or anything like that. So he's not teaching eternal future that can never go away no matter what we do. If we rebel like Satan in heaven, you know, uh, if we fall and try to lead a rebellion that we can't uh, get kicked out. He's not teaching, oh, we lose our free will once, once we enter the kingdom of God and we can never sin because we have no free will. You know, some people will try to put forth those concepts because they read a little too much into this word. But again, again, the immortal angels are killed. They are killed. It's a concept that works. You can have something immortal or eternal that does die. The immortality is referring to something different than not ever being able to die under any circumstances. Probably not what Paul's talking about here with Yahweh God, though. God is uh, supreme. No one's going to overthrow God. No one's going to take him down. He is truly immortal, and it won't go away. He's the king of ages, right? Elsewhere, the Bible talks about Jesus seeing God. No one has seen God but the Son. Uh, that type of idea is this about no one has ocularly seen him with their eyes. Is he saying that Isaiah has never seen him? Or is it the same idea as these unseen powers where they, they could be seen theoretically, but no one has because no one was there. No one's in that position to see God. Maybe it only happens very limitedly to only select individuals like Isaiah and Daniel. It could be those notions where we can't read too much into it. There's no context to support the Platonic reading of that word. The only God, that's a pretty common Jewish concept. There's one God. That doesn't mean there's not subordinate deities. There's not subordinate angel-type figures who run around and and rule different nations. It's not invalidating Psalms 82. But God is the only God. Yahweh God is the supreme deity over all the other lesser divine beings, uh, the angels, you know, the menials in the court of God. We see courtroom language in Paul time and time again. Uh, we'll have to get into those in, in future podcasts. But he does believe in the divine council. Very Jewish idea. Very anti-Platonic idea. And glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's what the proto-formula. The proto-formula for the Gnostic uh, major formulas where they actually talk in detail about their conceptions about God. What, what are they doing, these Gnostics? Some of these Gnostics, like Basilides, said he was a disciple of Matthias, who was a disciple of Paul. So they're claiming that their teachings are coming directly from Paul. Are they? 
Well, we haven't seen any evidence in Paul as of yet. Uh, as of uh, our how far we got into the study, we haven't seen any evidence that that's actually true, that Paul is teaching these doctrines. And especially because these doctrines are coming out of Alexandria, we, sh we should view them with a little bit of skepticism. Paul was not from Alexandria. Paul was uh, Israelite. He was steeped in Old Testament theology. He was a Pharisee. So those that's his starting point. That's his base. And unless we have good reason to reject that, we shouldn't reject that. He was an ancient rabbi, ancient Israelite rabbi. He wasn't a Platonic philosopher. And all you have to do to, to see that is see how he argues with the Platonists. See how he argues with the Stoics. See how he talks about philosophy. Go look at Colossians 2 and how he deals with this idea that the material is evil. Platonic ideas of metaphysics. How does he deal with those? He's not a Platonist. Anyways, we covered a wide berth on today's podcast. We covered a lot of different ideas about Paul. We covered Romans. We covered a few instances in Acts. And we laid a framework for this study. How we are going to read Paul. What we're looking for explicitly. What kind of phrases and terminology are going to stick out. How can we compare him to other ancient sources who did believe in things like simplicity, things like immutability, ineffability, eternal divine foreknowledge of all events. These, these sources do exist, and we readily admit they exist. But how do we know those people believed them? Because it's obvious in their writings. It's not quite obvious in Paul. And how Paul writes is like an open theist. The future is open. God, God is reacting to events as they occur. God gets frustrated. God thinks people have free will. God doesn't know why they're not responding to him. He doesn't know why. This is not a God who knows the future in meticulous detail to get frustrated about people rejecting him continuously. Very open theistic. Like, leave a comment, start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening. Oh,